From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Are you friends with your doctor? Do you follow him or her on social media? Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown, an assistant professor of pediatrics, bioethics, and humanities at Upstate, is with me today to talk about the use of social media in medicine. She's a pediatric oncologist, an ethicist, and medical educator, and Facebook user. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, you have an essay that was published in the June um, 2017 Journal of the American Medical Association where you talk about friending patients um, or their family members on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So, yes. Um, you talked about accepting a friend request from the mom of a patient. Um, so yeah. tell us about that. So this essay, um, and I want to first point out that the family I talk about in this essay read it and approved its publication Beforehand. and the discussion sure. of the case and everything. Um, so this was a patient I took care of back when I was a fellow um, who eventually died from her cancer, a teenage girl, um, and had had some difficulties in her care, some challenges where her parents felt things weren't communicated well. And so I didn't hear from them for a long time after she died, even though we were very close and I thought we had had a good relationship despite some of the other rockiness. Um, and then about a year and a half later, I was at home here because I grew up here visiting my parents, um, home from Colorado where I was training, and the little bubble pops up and says, this person would like to talk to you, is sending you a message. And requested that she be added as your friend or that you add her as her friend. And it was from the mom of this patient. And that really started a long online conversation that has continued up until this day that really taught me a lot about how they saw their care. And it was such a unique opportunity to see things from the family's perspective and sort of completely outside of the medical context in which I work. Has that um, relationship colored your sort of personal policy about friending patients and families? Yeah. I mean, I think the fact that I accepted the request in the first place suggested that I didn't start out with a strong policy of resistance or as we sometimes increasingly less, but sometimes teach students, you just say no, you tell them it's absolutely my policy that I never accept requests. And I didn't have really a personal policy of my own at the time, but certainly with this request and since then, I feel very comfortable accepting requests from parents of children who had died, from parents of children who are well off therapy, particularly because when I finished my fellowship training, I moved 2,000 miles away. So Facebook and, and other forms of social media became a really good way to keep in touch with people whose children are hopefully cured, done with their treatment, living great lives, but I can follow along and see how they're doing now three years or five years since they finished treatment. Do you have colleagues who say they would never friend someone? Yeah, I I mean, I think I see the whole spectrum, uh, but definitely, particularly people with less experience with social media are less comfortable being friends with patients, but also people who are very, very active, which I'm not in the very, very active group. So I'm not posting every minute of my life on Instagram or every minute of my son. I have a young son of my son's life on Facebook. So for me, it's not really an invasion of my privacy where I think some of my colleagues who are very, very active on social media say, well, I can't accept the request because I'm posting every minute of my personal life and I don't want to share that with a patient. So I think you see those two extremes in who will absolutely never accept requests. But more and more, I think people are in the middle um, saying this is an important part of the grieving process for parents to continue being in touch with their child's oncologist or their child's physician. And social media can be a part of that. And I think there's a lot more recognition of that now. Is there, um, do you see a generational difference among doctors or, or students that are becoming doctors? Are they more likely to be accepting of using social media with patients or, or less? Or it's, 
It's interesting. I don't I don't see a consistent generational divide. Mm-hmm. When I wrote this essay, I got actually an extraordinary number of emails from readers, which was really interesting from mostly from other physicians, but sometimes other healthcare providers and even a couple of parents and people who work in grief and bereavement. So I've heard from a lot of people um, and some of the older physicians said I had never even considered this as a possibility, but I work in someone said rural Mississippi or rural Kansas and if this is a way that I can provide better care and keep better in touch, I'm willing to consider it. Uh, So I saw that sort of reaction. And I think what I wrote about at the end of the essay is I don't see a lot of resistance from students yet when they are told to not friend patients. Um, And I think some of that is coming from just not, not knowing how this will play out. It's still so new. And developing a confidence of their own over time and Mm-hmm. So exactly. Well, let's differentiate for listeners. Um, social media is one thing, but researching online for medical information can can be another. Um, but they can't overlap, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think it's an important distinction to make because some of, some of the websites like WebMD have been around for a long time and studies have certainly shown that more than 80% probably closer to 90% of patients look up some form of medical information online. It's a, probably about, I think in the last study, it was about a qu- one in four adults who use social media to actually connect with another person to find out about their illness. Oh. And then... A third distinction in that group would be the people who actually want to connect directly to their physicians. But I think more commonly, people want to connect to other patients. Parents want to connect to other parents of children with cancer. Patients want to hear other people who share their sort of stories and exchange informal medical information that way. Well, especially I can imagine if you get a a diagnosis of something that's rare and you don't know anyone in your circle that has it. You know exactly, and I think that's the real potential. Um, And I obviously I'm a pediatrician in a specialty that is somewhat uncommon. Childhood cancer is not common, and many of the children we see have very rare cancers. There's also a host of other rare childhood diseases that we diagnose and treat in Syracuse, but there may not be another child with that diagnosis locally. Mm -hmm. And so social media is an opportunity for parents to talk to someone else. Um, I've heard stories from parents of children with rare developmental disorders where they were able to hear tricks for helping their children feed from other parents, things that sometimes physicians just aren't as aware of problems, but in talking to another parent, they can say, oh, your child does that, and so does mine, and here's how I worked through it on a day-to-day basis. So I think that's the tremendous potential. Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown, an assistant professor of pediatrics, bioethics, and humanities at Upstate. Um, Some of the information that patients are getting via social media, how accurate is it? That's a really interesting question because we are starting to have some answers that I think the conventional wisdom has been, oh, no, it's not accurate. People, people still tell patients don't go online. And I think that's the wrong thing to do. I think it's we need to give patients guidance on where to look online, how to be skeptical about what they're reading online, how to check the evidence. And I think we need to create a space that is safe for them to come back with what they find online and talk to their physicians about it. But it's actually not as bad as people think. So Elizabeth Gage Bouchard is a medical anthropologist at SUNY Buffalo who has done some interesting work and they studied public Facebook pages of parents of children with cancer. About two-thirds of the information was medically accurate when checked by pediatric oncologists. Wow, that's a two-thirds. Wow. It's pretty good. Mm-hmm. About 14% was about unproven treatment, so alternative medicine, things that 
Western medicine that the kind of medicine I practice just doesn't really have a stance on or doesn't have evidence to back up yet. And only about 20% was medically inaccurate. And I just want to contrast this with some of the research the RAND Institute has done, which shows that at least 20% of what doctors, or only 20% of what doctors say is fully backed up by evidence. Wow. So it's not clear that social media is so bad in terms of the accuracy of what kinds of information parents might put out there or exchange with other parents. Interesting. So, and we've talked about some of the benefits too of just um, getting other ideas from people who've been there um, Social support, psychosocial support? Yeah, there's great potential for psychosocial support. I think there's risks. Um, So some things have come out in the literature around children with trisomies, not with Down syndrome, but with some of the more severe forms of of trisomies, um, trisomy 13, trisomy 18. And some parents feel pressured by other parents to be very aggressive in their treatments or to not move to palliative care when the physicians are suggesting moving to palliative care, moving to comfort care. So I think there's that risk that parents will feel like they have to do things the way other parents are doing them in order to be a, quote, good parent. Um, so that's, but on the other hand, there's all this potential for people, especially people in rural areas or in smaller towns to meet people and talk with people who share experiences. There's even conferences that have sprung up this way, bringing together groups of patients with the same diseases. And what about privacy though? Are there privacy concerns? Yeah, definitely. I mean, particularly with children, they're not agreeing to this when their parents publish their stories or write about their stories, which I do think can be a tremendous outlet for parents and a way of expressing themselves and working through the experience of having a child who's very ill. There's also the problem of that, but the children, the child isn't saying yes. And there have been, as, the, as this is still new, but there are some now adult children, former patients who have said, actually, I wish my mother hadn't written so extensively about, say, my autism in one case. And now I'm an adult and I wish all that information was out there everything's out there still and it's still out there and it is I think most people know this now but it's very hard to remove even when you take down websites there's screenshots there's still information that floats around so I think that's something for parents to really think carefully about and even for parents who are not writing about illness but just writing about their children in general it's good to take a step back and think how is my child going to feel in 10 years when their classmates say, find this post I wrote about their potty training? And these are all, these are all examples that come up pretty frequently. Uh, so it's something to be really cautious about. Well, how can patients and families sort of protect themselves and be, I mean, just thinking about thinking before they hit send or... Thinking before you hit sleeping on it, I think, is probably one of the best uh, pieces of advice that, that anyone has given anyone about emailing, tweeting... Um, just sleep on it. Think about what you're saying. I think for parents who are keeping a blog, and I don't want to completely discourage that because I think these public blogs are such a form of support uh, for reaching out to other people. I have learned a lot from following families' blogs as a physician, but if it's going to be completely public, then I think people need to take be very, very cautious in what they're writing. Consider using pseudonyms, changing details, not publishing their location. Um, just things that would put an extra layer between anyone actually identifying their child, particularly as that child grows up. Well, some uh, are you familiar with Caring Bridge? Because mm-hmm. yep. some websites have some privacy protection sort of built in. Yep, and that's definitely an option, and I think is probably for a lot of people is probably the best option is having a page that isn't completely public. But I have heard such positive experiences of people who are sharing their story fully publicly that they've 
gotten a lot of great feedback. They've met people they would never have met otherwise that I would never say, absolutely don't do that. That's wrong. But it's something to be cautious about and maybe start out with your page or your blog or your posts completely private and then think about whether this is writing that you really want to share with the whole world. Right. Maybe family members or close friends, Mm -hmm. but maybe not the entire world. And maybe even your physician. Okay. Well, let's get back to that. Do you think it's okay for patients to send a friend request to their physician? Um, I think it would, the best thing would be for patients to ask their physician about it. I think a in, lot in of person. in person. Okay. Yeah. It's just to start out with a face to face. Do you ever accept friend requests from patients? Uh, because I think a lot of physicians worry about, they don't want to offend people. They don't want to hurt someone's feelings, but perhaps it is concerns about their own privacy or their children's privacy because they're posting things about their children on Facebook that are only really for friends and family. So that's a great conversation to have in person. I think for the physician who gets that request, that's also a great conversation to have in person, to not just click no or not send a sort of generic, I never accept request, but to talk to the patient in person about why you don't and other ways in which you might be able to communicate when they're not in the office, because that may be what the patient is really looking for, is a way to get their questions and concerns answered in between those visits. It could be, sure. But it could also be, I mean, if you see a physician for 20 years, 30 years, you may start feeling like they're your friend, a real friend. And that's, it's true. And I, I mean, I just have to say personally, so my father blogged about his own illness and I had patients who found that blog and followed it and who also reached out to me when he died. And that was, that was a very valuable experience. I mean, that was really part of the reciprocal nature of the bond between a physician and a family that I was a source of support to them, but they recognized when something sad had happened in my life too. Well, thanks for talking about this with me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. My guest has been Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown, a pediatric oncologist, ethicist, and medical educator at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.